And, uh, but Psalm 36 is where we'll be this evening. Uh, briefer than the psalm we just finished or the one we're about to cover. But let's read it, get its words before us. You see that it's going to co- contrast the character of God with the character of the wicked. And as always, what we're trying to do as we look at these psalms, we're also trying to see how they relate to Jesus. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, at the end. But in Psalm 36, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I hope we do have several translations represented tonight because I wanted to invoke... Um, some differences here. But the New American Standard. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountain of God, the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the rivers of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Now, Psalm 1, first psalm that we covered, remember it contrasted the righteous man with the wicked man. This psalm contrasts the wicked man with our righteous God. So the contrast is even more stark. The wicked is described, then God is described, and it ends with a plea for God continue to show His loving kindness in bringing down the wicked and not letting the wicked triumph. Now, so many things to cover, uh, but verse 1, we start off right, right, the, right off the top of the bat, we start off with a, a difficult expression. Does anyone here have the New International Version? Is anyone reading that right now? You do have that, Heather? Okay, Heather, read the New International in verse 1. I want you to to look at your translation and uh, see how much this, this probably differs from yours. Go ahead. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay. 
Did you recognize that was the same verse? Uh, you may not. Try it again, Heather. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay. I have a message from God for the wicked. Um, now, all of that is a translation of two words in Hebrew. And the word that's translated speaks here in 361, 36.1, this word that's translated speaks is often translated oracle. That's what the New King James King James does say that. Yeah, New King James has the word oracle. It's often translated that way. Now, the reason the NIV goes in the direction that it does is because usually when this term is used in the Old Testament, the word that follows right after it is usually the word Lord or the word God or some word like that. You have examples of that. Like in Psalm 110... Verse 1, you have these two words together, the oracle of the Lord. You also, so most of the time this word is used, it's used in reference to an oracle from God. You find a couple of times it's used for an oracle of Balaam. I believe the passage, you can look it up quickly, is Numbers 24.3. And then it's used for an oracle of David in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. But but predominantly is used of an oracle from God. That's why the NIV just fills in some of those words. They're not actually in the text. But the first word is actually the word transgression. Or this word rebellion. And in this case, instead of the Lord speaking, instead of a messenger from the Lord speaking, it is rebellion that is speaking to this ungodly person within his heart. It is speaking to him within his heart because he has eliminated the fear of God. Notice that in verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Because he's eliminated the fear of God, he is open to all kinds of wicked things. And when transgression speaks to him within his heart, Unfortunately, he is listening. He has created an environment. He's created an environment in which sin can grow and sin can reproduce. One of the reasons for reading the Bible regularly, I think habits like that simply create a life where it's hard for sin to take root. It's hard for sin to grow in that kind of environment. I'm not saying that we don't think things that we shouldn't sometimes, and we don't say things that we shouldn't sometimes. We don't reach perfection. But all of these things are a deterrent to that. All of these things put sin down and put it in its place. But here transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, There is no fear of God. There are a couple of passages about 
Psalm um, Psalm 10 verse 4 is a good passage to write down there. Psalm 10 verse 4 and Psalm 14 1. Uh, what these passages say in Psalm 10 4, the wicked man in his haughtiness in his haughtiness does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. In Psalm 14 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And here, this person simply doesn't fear God. Something we want to come back to later, Lord willing, is this statement, there is no fear of God before their eyes is quoted in the New Testament in Romans 3.18. Very important fact. It's quoted in Romans chapter 3, verse 18. Notice in these first four verses, there are some words that are used uh, a couple of times. Maybe your translation bears this out. Maybe it doesn't. But, for example, the word eyes is found in one and two. And that will be an important connection. The word good is used in verses 3 and 4, both those verses, the word a wickedness will be used as well in verses 3 and 4. Now, verse 2 is also difficult to translate. It's difficult to translate, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and hatred of it. And maybe your translations differ a lot at the end of verse 2. Because that's that's kind of an awkward... Uh, it's worded rather awkwardly. The idea seems to be, though, that while there's no fear of God in his own eyes, there is a lot of self-adoration in his eyes. He has effectively blinded himself, seen himself as the center of the universe. The wicked person has eliminated fear of God so he flatters himself with his eyes. He's flatter- he looks good in his eyes. The thought of God and the fear of God's not taken into consideration. And it says concerning the discovery of his iniquity, his hatred of it, he doesn't think anyone will discover his sin. He doesn't hate his sin. He doesn't think anyone else could. But, but I will say it's a little difficult to, uh, to, to uh, interpret all that means, but I think that we're headed in the right spot with that. And he demonstrates his evil, his wickedness in verse 3 with the words of his mouth. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Apparently, at one time, this evil man who's being described did good. And he was wise, but he ceased to be wise. He ceased to be good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. Now, I want to tell you a good test of who you are. You're laying there at night. 
and you can't sleep. A problem, which by the way, I found becoming more frequent in life uh, as I get older. But you're laying there and you can't sleep. What does your mind go to? Where does your mind go? And let me give you some bad examples. We just saw a bad example right here in this passage. But Proverbs 4.16 is a bad example. In Proverbs 4 verse 16, the Bible talks about the wicked man. And it says, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Now, I've heard of people whose conscience bothered them. They can't sleep because they've done something wrong. Hear people who can't sleep and their conscience bothers them if they haven't done someone wrong. An extreme picture painted of the wicked. They cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. But again, you're getting the idea that wickedness is their life. It's not something they've accidentally fallen into occasionally. It is something that is their life. It drives them. It motivates them. Now listen to Micah. Micah 2. Micah 2 verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it's in the power of their hands. They covet fields, they seize them houses and take them away. They rob a man and his his house, a man and his inheritance. So they are laying awake at night scheming how to take advantage of others, how to take someone's field, how to take someone's house. And they contemplate this at night. And then when they get up in the morning, they do it because they have the power to do so. Now those are bad examples. But you know, the Bible gives us some good examples too of people who are lying awake at night and are thinking about better things. At least the Bible connects this um, with sitting and lying. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So here you find a a family... Uh, where they are constantly talking about the Word, when they sit down, when they rise up, when they lie down, they're talking about the Word. Do you ever think about the Word when you're lying in the bed and you can't sleep? Do you think about the great things that God has said? What you do, think about in those moments, reveals who you are. And while in verse 3, one has ceased to do good, in verse 4, 
he's following a path that is not good. In verse 3, the words of his mouth are wickedness. And that's the same in verse 4 as the plans of his heart. They're wickedness. So, there's another statement here at the end of verse 4 that I think is interesting. It sums up, he does not despise evil. If we don't despise wrong and abhor wrong, we open up a door for it. The Bible says, abhor, hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Romans 12 verse 9. What questions do you all have there or comments on those first four verses of Psalm 36? What, what else do you see? It's just it just means message or revelation. It's just the idea of God communicating this or, or general generally it's the idea of God communicating. Here it's the idea of sin communicating this message. But yes, and, and someone else I think it was me. Okay. So one of the things, obviously I'm a new Christian, new perspective in here, I go through the Bible, I start reading this, I start to see kind of some numbers, correlations, um, you know, all of these start with a one, you know, first, and then two would speak to, or the second chapter would speak to love, or the second phrase, verse, and then the third phrase would speak, or the third verse would speak to trust. Okay. So it'd be... Uh, first verse might speak of love, trust. Second verse speak of love. Third verse trust. Uh huh. I just kind of see okay. repeating in the Bible over and over. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes the Bible keeps coming back to the same messages of trusting God and loving God and surrendering to God. So, so, so you're right. Those messages are all through Scripture. And reconciles in everyone, it seems. Yeah. Keep yeah. striving home a lot of the same themes. And I saw another hand in the back there. Um, with verse 4, him devising wickedness on his bed. You can see that in David himself with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the yeah. Hittite. Um, and then the subsequent him staying up all night, uh, mourning the, the coming death of his of his child. And so, mm-hmm. uh, interesting that. Yeah, that that is interesting. That is interesting, and and that and we may try to re, we may try to revisit that at the end. Something we may say that may tie in with that. And anything else? The 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 picture that's given of the wicked, and there there are places in Psalms that. Pres- Present a more desperate picture of the wicked than that, but 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 that is not a good picture. But it is shown to be so dark against the character of God. And these are powerful, powerful words. What we will have in our English translations in verses five through nine is you'll have first of all the English Bible. Most of them you'll have the word "your." I'm, I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible. You have a word "your." You'll have an it plus an attribute of God plus an element 
of nature or creation is given as a point of comparison. Let's just read verses 5 and 6 again and see this. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And there's a point where some of your translations may differ. Your judgments are like a great deep. You preserve men and beasts. So you find your described in an attribute of God. And then some point of comparison. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. To the heavens. Now what's the difference between the heavens in the first part and the faithfulness reaching to the skies in the second part of verse 5? I don't know that there's meant to be much difference. Some have stated there's a little descending order in these elements of nature. He first mentions the heavens, then he mentions the skies, then he mentions the mountains, and finally he mentions the great deep. But he goes from the highest point of creation to the lowest point, but he is demonstrating that these attributes of God are immeasurable. They're beyond our ability to quantify. I think that's the idea. When you're flying in a plane, and I can remember, I remember saying this one day, it was a clear day, it was a summer day, and we were flying, and it looked like the ground was just a little bit below. And I can remember saying to the person beside me, I said, you know, it seems like we're not flying that high today. <laughs> About that time, the pilot came on and said, we're at 40,000 feet. And I thought, well, I'm glad we're not any higher than that. <laughs> it sure did look clear. But think about God's loving kindness extending to the heavens. There's no one word in the Old Testament that better describes the character of God than loving kindness. There's no one word in this psalm that better describes the character of God than loving kindness. You notice that term is used in verse 5. It's used in verse 7. It's used in verse 10. Verse 5, verse 7, and verse 10. Loving kindness. It is God's mercy. It is God's grace. It is God's compassion. It is all of these things and more wrapped up in one word. And it extends to the heavens and His faithfulness reaches to the skies. His faithfulness. When you think of faithfulness in regard to God, what do you think of? All things. Okay. Yeah, and he's just loyal in all things. He's faithful to his promises. He does what he says. He he is a God who we can trust and we can put confidence in. And some of the words that you were using earlier. 
And he's totally reliable. Absolutely, totally reliable. And Jesus is sometimes described as um, the Amen in the book of Revelation. The Amen. He is one that we can rely on, one that we can depend on. And it's the same way with God's promises, God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness. They reach to the heavens. They reach to the skies. In verse 6, His righteousness, and that word is used several different ways in the Old Testament. It can refer to the character of God, that God is utterly holy. It can refer to the fact that uh, that God makes us right with Himself. He gives us victory. There, there are a multitude of ways that that term is used. But it's like the mountains of God. Now, do your translations have anything different in that first part of verse 6? Great mountains. Great mountains. Highest mountains, okay? And uh, and that's the New King... Was that the New King James over here? And what was that translation? Holman. Holman. This is the highest mountains. The question in, in the Hebrew term here is El, and that's kind of a shortened form of Elohim. And um, but some believe this is used in reference to the name of God, and some think it's used as an adjective which can mean something like strong or mighty or great. So so here they're all looking at this same word and say, is this describing a, a proper noun? Is it describing God like the mountains of God? Or is it using this term El as, a, as an adjective to say mighty, to say great? And, and either way you come out at the same place. I don't want that one to bother you at all because it shouldn't. But, but the idea is that the mountains are the most stable, the most firm, the most secure. And that's what God's righteousness is like. If if you remember reading Greek mythology in schools, um, painful experience. (laughs) It's not a given that the gods are going to do the right thing. It's not a given at all. The fact that we take that as a given shows how influenced, and I mean this in a good way, but we've been by the biblical concept of God. The righteousness, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments. Do any of your translations there translate judgments any differently? Justice. Justice. Your justice. God is always right. God is always fair. That is the idea here. With men, you're going to see injustice. You're going to see people convicted of wrongs that they've never committed. And you're going to find people let go uh, for crimes they have committed when they should have been convicted. But not with God. God's judgments are like the great deep. So he goes from one end of creation, from the heavens uh, to the lowest depths, 
and to talk about how these positive attributes of God are beyond our ability to grasp. Whatever your thoughts of God are, your thoughts are too small because God is greater than all those thoughts. And in verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The idea is of a chick who takes her wings, who takes her chicks under her wings to protect them, to shelter them, to shield them. We are not like those in verse 1 who are who have no fear of God before their eyes. That's not how we're seeking to live. We're seeking to be like the chick that is dependent upon its mother. We are seeking that in this God whose loving kindness whose faithfulness, whose righteousness and justice are infinite, immeasurable. I don't know there's any better place to take refuge than that. And this God can abundantly provide for us. In verse 8, they drink the fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the rivers of your delights. Water is a given in our homes, in our culture. We could go over to the faucet and we turn it on. Let us not take that for granted. God help us not to take that for granted. These people, it was a precious commodity. And the text tells us they can drink their fill and have an abundance for the provision of this God. Now the word delights, the word delights that's used here in verse 8, 36 verse 8, this word is connected with the word Eden which I'm not going to insult you and ask you where you read about that in the Bible. (laughs) But it's connected with that word. And the point is, it is seemingly comparing the blessings from God's presence to the Garden of Eden. Verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, And in your light, we see light. Now that's a good statement. In your light, we see light. It is allegedly on C.S. Lewis's tomb that he said, I believe in God like I believe in the Son. I believe in the Son because I see it rising in the morning. And I believe in the sun because because in its light I see all other things clearly. And isn't that the way it is with God? That first of all, we see Him. And because we see Him... We see everything else clearly because of Him. In your light, we see light. 
What other thoughts do you have there on the, the nature of God, particularly verses 5 through 9? Anything that you have? Thoughts, Micah? Um, a question on verse 6 about the righteousness is like the great mountains are the mountains of the Lord. Is there any potential connection with Horeb being the mountain of God? Some people try to uh, connect that with, um, you know, it, it could be, it could be, it could be there was um, Mount Zaphon in the Old Testament too, if you remember that mountain, where uh, it was, uh, that sometimes is used, was described as the meeting place of the gods in the ancient Near East, and that God is taking this kind of language. It could be that there's some, it's, it, it's, um, Yes, I haven't followed through that thought and connected the dot, but but certainly that there may be something there. In verse ten, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So he mentions God's loving kindness, which we've stated mentioned three times: verse five, verse seven, verse ten. God's loving kindness is mentioned again. God's righteousness is mentioned again. God's righteousness is mentioned in verse um, in verse six, and it's mentioned again here in verse ten. And may God continue to show this to people who know Him, to those who are upright in heart. Remember in verse one that transgression spoke to the ungodly within His heart. But in verse 10, the text says, your righteousness, show your righteousness to the upright in heart. In verse 11, let not the foot of pride come upon me and let me, let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Now, what the foot of pride may mean here. There are a couple of, do you remember the reference in Joshua 24 verse 10? After Joshua had defeated five of the kings of Canaan and he brought them out and the Israelites put their feet on their neck. Put their feet on their neck. And and apparently that was symbolic that like we defeated you in battle and they often did that. And he says, this is what you're going to do to all these kings in the land of Canaan. You're going to put your feet under their neck. And remember, Jesus or Paul picks up that language. And says that you'll put all your enemies underneath your feet, and the last enemy to be put under your feet is death. First Corinthians fifteen, just like just like those kings of Canaan were put under their feet, so one day death will be put under the feet of the people of God. No more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Uh, but another passage that ties with this is um, uh, Psalm one ten one. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, Isaiah 51 verse 17 talked about how in battle, that it says, I'm going to make your enemies lie down and you will walk across their back. And it seems like to me that what David is asking here in verse 11 is don't let me suffer like this or don't let those who are upright in heart who know you do not let the foot of pride come upon them don't let us be defeated and humiliated like those uh, by wicked men by godless men 
Um, let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have fallen and they cannot rise. Because God is loving kindness, because He is faithful, because He is righteous, because He is a God of justice, ultimately, evil will not prevail in our universe. When we see it looking like it's prevailing, and it often does in our world, when we see it looking like it's prevailing, the ultimate truth is it will not prevail. The workers, the doers of iniquity will fall, they will be thrown down, and they cannot rise. Ultimately, evil will be destroyed, and righteousness will prevail, prevail, because this is the kind of God that God is. And that is a reason to rejoice. And that's a reason to follow Him. What thoughts right there before... We're going to, in just a moment, for those of you who haven't been here before, we'd like to then look back over the psalm and see how we can apply these words to Jesus. But right now, it's the words of the text. Do you have any thoughts right there? Any ideas? Okay, can we find anything about Jesus in Psalm 36? Um, It's never too hard of a process. There were a lot of things tonight that that I thought make this easy. Anybody have a comment right at the start here? Here we go on. What was that? He was gone. No more. Okay. Evil, defeated, or evil, wickedness, devil. Yes. That's a good picture of evil right there. It's just been erased, eliminated. (laughs) Um, We pointed out before that Psalm 36.1, and this is a good place to start. Psalm 36.1 is quoted... In Romans 3.18. Now, we've had this kind of thing before in class. We haven't had it recently. Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's overall point, his overall point in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, is that all have sinned, that all are guilty, and all of us, it is as if we were in a court of law and the evidence is presented against us and the evidence is so overwhelming that when it comes time to speak in our defense, we have absolutely nothing to say because the evidence is so overwhelming that we are guilty, that we're convicted, that we are guilty of sin. That's fascinating to me that he uses this picture of wickedness He uses this picture and applies it to all of us. He applies it to all of us. Have you ever, even for an instant, lived with no fear of God before your eyes? Sure we have. 
even if it was just an incident, even if we quickly recognized our wrong and were overwhelmed with guilt for what we did, we all have. But it's interesting to me as well that right after He does that, right after He he describes how we have all sinned and we are all guilty before God, let's look at Romans 3. Let's pick up with verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. Now, I want to ask you if in light of Psalm 36, if there are any words that particularly jump out to you in this reading. Let's read it first, and then I'll throw that question out there. In verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith that was to demonstrate His righteousness because of the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in light of the language of Romans or Psalm chapter 36, did any of those words of Romans 3 particularly catch your attention? And what was it if it did? Righteousness. Righteousness. The word righteousness is used four times. It's used in 321, 322, 325, and 326. And we stated that the word righteousness is used several different ways in the Old Testament, and it can be in the New. It seems like to me that verse 25 and 26 is using the term righteousness to describe God's character. That God had to punish sin to show Himself to be righteous, to be holy. God's righteousness is like the mountains and like the mightiest of mountains. But here in this particular case, to demonstrate His righteousness, Christ died upon the cross. But in verse 21 and 26, the term righteousness seems to describe God's way of making us right with Himself. That way, He says, is apart from law, but He is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. Those of us who are guilty before God, who have sinned and done wrong, and live with no fear of God before our eyes, we can be made right with God by the cross of Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. He turns away His anger by the offering of a gift. Let me use a couple of illustrations of that word propitiation. Genesis Genesis 32. 
Jacob has to come back to the land. He warns his brother Esau. He sends messengers ahead. says, your brother Jacob is coming. The messengers come back and say, Esau is coming to greet you with 400 men. Now Esau and Jacob haven't seen each other in 20 years. The last thing Esau said about him or to him was, when my father's dead, I'm going to kill him. Even 20 years, that can stick with you. (laughs) And so if someone's coming out with 400 men, he thinks he's going to make good on that promise. If you read Genesis 32, I've counted it up before. It seems like to me there are at least 580 animals involved. And he has them staggered. Like, for example, he has one servant presenting this group of animals. And they said, they are a present to your Lord Esau from your servant Jacob. And when one messenger brings those presents, there's another messenger on his way, and he is bringing all these animals. And and this would have been an enormous amount of wealth that's changing hands. And, And Jacob, who has wronged his brother hopes that Esau will see this and be propitiated. His anger will turn away. Okay? Okay. That is an illustration from the Bible. Here's an illustration from everyday life. Not in the Bible. Let's say at one time you come home and and, uh, your wife has fixed something new and, and you... And you all of a sudden are realizing, you know, this this isn't very good. And uh, and she just happens to ask that question you were dreading. Do you like it? And before thinking, you just blurt out, "No, it's terrible." <laughs> and and she gets all offended, and she uh, runs out of the house, or cries, or calls mama, or all the above. And and you remember on your way home that you pass this thing that said a dozen roses for $20. And you go out and you buy those roses and you bring them back and you offer that gift to turn away their anger. Okay? And may or may not be based on a real life experience. Okay? But this is, this is the point. In both cases... Who offers the gift to turn away anger? Jacob did wrong and Jacob offers the gift to turn away Esau's anger. The husband did the wrong and he offers the gift to turn away the wife's anger. But in the Bible story, there's nothing we can offer that's good enough, that's big enough to take away the the guilt. And so when we couldn't offer anything, God in His mercy offers the gift to turn away His own anger. We had transgressed. He offers the gift so that we can be right with Him. That is amazing grace. And what I'm trying to stress is in the cross of Christ, 
All these attributes that we emphasized about God are shown. God's loving kindness is shown through the cross. God's faithfulness is shown by the cross. God's righteousness is shown in the cross. And God's justice is shown in the cross. And as Jesus hung upon the cross, the loving kindness of God reaches the heavens and the faithfulness of God reaches the sky. And the righteousness of God is as sure and as enduring as the mountains and His justice is as unfathomable as the deep. It's the depths. The point, all these attributes are shown at the cross of Jesus. And because of that, because He shows all these attributes in the cross, we can drink abundantly of the water of life. Just like verse 8 says. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you have given them drink of the rivers of your delight. You can drink of the abundance of God's blessings. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman and He said, give me a drink. And she was surprised that He, a Jew, spoke to her, a Samaritan, her woman. And He begins a discussion with her and, and, he, say, and he says, if you would know known who it was and who this is who's speaking to you, you would ask Him and He would give you a living waters. He goes on to say, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. You can drink of real water. In John 7, in verse 38, Jesus is described in a similar way. Yes, in Him, we can drink our fill of the abundance of His house. We can drink of the river of his delights. In verse 9, the two words associated with Jesus, or associated with God here in 36 9, and I apologize if, if I'm writing different places, it's hard to follow. But the two words are life and light. Think about those words in John 1 verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus is said to be the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John fourteen verse six. He said, I am the light of the world in John eight twelve and John nine five. He is the true life which lightens every man who comes in the world. John one verses nine to eleven. He is life. He is light. Jesus fulfills the words of this psalm in an awesome and powerful way. Don't you think about this? 
Remember when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I would gather you. What's the illustration he uses? Hen gathers her chicks under her wings. It's an illustration right here from Psalm 36, verse 7. That would gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And so 36, 7 uses that language of Matthew 23, 37, of, of, of Luke 13, 34. How foolish it would be for us to turn down that invitation. How foolish it would be if we are not willing to be gathered. Eternally. Absolutely. I mean, his he keeps us for time and eternity. And our ultimately defeats death. Go ahead. God's attributes. Would we not put knowledge in there as well? We can. We we are emphasizing the things specifically said in this text. Okay. Okay. So, but what, what you're, we could we could write a whole lot more, <laughs> but but we're specifically focusing on the things that were highlighted in this text, principally in verses five and six. By the way, those four attributes of God are tied together in other places, but in one verse. Another verse that does it is Psalm 89, verse 14. Psalm 89, verse 14. Okay? What else can you think of? Is it exciting to have a full house or full room to teach the class? Um, John is going to be singing tonight with Brad being sick. It's good to see, good to see you back there. Emily wasn't expecting any of of you all, and um, um, so John will sing in just a moment. And um, David and Deborah are still planning to go tomorrow morning, so we'll have David lead us. David leads us in a prayer before he leaves us for a couple of months. God and Father in heaven, we're truly humbled by your greatness and your loving kindness for us. You are so good to us, so merciful. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and we're eternally grateful to you. Help us to keep those things, those thoughts in our minds. And use that to motivate us to serve you ever more faithfully. Father, we're thankful for your words that were presented so ably tonight by our brother Tommy. Thankful for the abilities that you have granted him. Father, we're also mindful of the many that are sick and in need of healing. And we'd ask that your healing hand be upon each one. That be your will. Father, continue to be with us. Help us to grow and to share the message of your word with those that we come in contact with. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
So this is a song based upon Psalm 36 to the tune of I'm not ashamed to own my Lord and to fit all of the thoughts in. They needed 10 verses. Uh, and uh, it, I, I, in, in quickly looking through this, I found it hard sometimes to remember which one I was on as I was moving from the upper staff to the lower staff. And... Uh, and so I will try to keep my finger held up, you know, through five and then six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, okay? Something, maybe to the side, something like that. Okay. So we'll sing, and just notice, just notice how uh, verses one through four describe the wicked person and then contrast that with what we see then in uh, verses uh, five through, well, at least, at least eight, uh, and then eight or nine, and, and, and then how the, the song ends, uh, in verse 11 with the, the, uh, uh, punishment, uh, of the evildoers. Okay. <clears throat> Does so Transgression to the wicked speaks deep in the heart it lies. There surely is no fear of God at all before His eyes. Because Himself He flatters so Thy mercy, Lord, 
extends to have my faithfulness the sky. Thy justice is like mounts of God, thy judgment steps defy. Lord, thou preservest man and beast, thou precious God, thy grace. Interpretation, but I thought we'd sit it back a lot better than that. You know, there was another. Okay. 